This is Nick Ewing, if you don't know him. Thank you all. Well, Merry Christmas. It's an incredible honor to be able to uh, come with you tonight and to worship our God. Um, about a week ago, my wife asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and I said, I want to preach Christmas Eve. I want many to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. I want to celebrate Christmas Day, and then I want Jesus to come back and come get us. So I don't know if, uh, I don't know if my wish will be granted, but God tells me I don't need to worry about times. I don't need to worry about those plans. I just need to be obedient. And so uh, tonight we're going to enter into what I think is the greatest story ever told. It's a rescue story. We've been singing about it. We've been contemplating it through this season. Uh, and I have two friends that are going to read uh, the story that you are uh, probably used to hearing about. And then we're going to uh, look at a deeper part of the story or another aspect of the story. So before we do, would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your love. And we need you desperately. I need you this hour. We need you to grant us understanding. We thank you that you delight in making yourself known to us, and we ask that you would do that now. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So, Bob, why don't you come up? This is Luke 1, 26 through 38, and then Chris will read the remainder. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of this Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth your relative is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her six months. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quinarius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to, in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Thanks. Okay, so the story in Luke about Jesus Christ being born a child. And tonight we're going to try to answer why Jesus was born. And I want to back the camera up just a little bit and see if we can unpack what happened before that night, a slightly different story that has a little bit different feel. I want you to imagine a scene in heaven. In Revelations chapter 12, it depicts this scene in heaven, and it talks about a woman giving birth to Jesus. And it describes a red dragon being Satan, seeking to devour the child Jesus. But he wasn't able to do it. God didn't allow it. And in verse 5, says, There was a war that was then waged, and the dragon was thrown down to earth. So the dragon was enraged and went to make war with the rest of her offspring, which would be mankind. And so this is the backstage. This is the backstory of why Jesus came. And so I get this picture of the red dragon, of the enemy, seeking to wage war on God's people. And then the scene in heaven perhaps was something like this. I, I imagine Jesus sitting on his throne, clothed in majesty, crown upon his head, interacting with Father, dancing with the Holy Spirit. And as he sees this threat to those who lo he loves, as he sees this threat, there is an anger, there is a righteous anger, there is the, a hero's heart that's awakened in the sun. And at that time, he looks at the father perhaps and nods, and the father nods at him. And he strips his robe off, and he hangs it up, and he takes his crown off, and he picks up a sword. Like this. Because there's different descriptions of Jesus and what he's like. And in Deuteronomy 32, 36 through 43, I want you to listen carefully. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I sharpen my flashing sword, and my hand takes hold of judgment. I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. Rejoice with him, O heaven. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his land with people. 
So this idea that vengeance is God's, that he will repay all evil. And so we picture this rescue plan. We picture God, Jesus Christ, in heaven. Jesus bangs open the doors of heaven and he gets on a war horse and he's coming after the dragon and he's coming after the salvation of you and I. And then a crazy twist takes place, something that we wouldn't have thought of. As Pastor Mike shared in Philippians 2, in this invasion, in this rescue plan, he is inserts himself in the womb of a teenager. The king of kings, the warrior, the sustainer of all things, of your heart, of my heart, of every organism, becomes a baby. Twist number one, not what I would expect in this first rescue plan. Why did God become a baby? Why did God become a man? Why did he empty himself and become a man. I think he was fully man and fully God. But as Mike read in Philippians, it's almost as if he, he took the advantages of being God. He took the right he had as God and he set them aside for a time so that he would learn obedience. He would learn trust. He would choose dependence on the Father. Places in Scripture say that he did this to become like us so that he could be our substitute. It says that he comforted us and he knows what you go through. He knows what life is like. He knows what joy is like as a human. He knows what pain is like. And he says, what you feel, those things and those attacks, those good times and those bad, I know what that's like. And so I can comfort you. I'm like you. Not only that, I can take your place. See, there's another scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is on earth. And he knows very much what it's like to experience anxiety, to experience really the breath of the dragon upon him. Scripture describes him praying and praying and praying, asking the Father, take this cup away. If there's another way to save my people, because I desperately want to, I still got them in my sight, but this is almost more than I can bear. And we sit here, and as, as Jesus is on his hands, sweating drops of blood, the Bible says, doesn't quite look like I thought it was going to look. Doesn't quite look like I thought he was going to come and rescue in the story. But in that moment when your destiny and my destiny hangs in the balance, at that moment Jesus says, I trust you, Father. Not my will, but your will be done. And in my mind, that is the moment in history that God chose us. That is the moment in time that he says, I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be abandoned. I know what it's like to fear the worst kind of thing. And I will choose that cost to win you. So the first twist in this rescue story is that God became a baby, a human. And he came to die. So why did Jesus have to die? I've thought this question. I thought, uh, well, there's probably multiple answers to this. But perhaps one reason is because he so desired to demonstrate the extent of his love for us. And we know that sacrifice is the greatest form of love. Scripture says that there is no greater form of love than one who gives his life for another. And we know this intrinsically. We know that when people kind of say no to themselves for our sake, that's a true form of love. And so I think one of the reasons that he came and he died was so that we would have no doubt of the extent 
of his love, that this would be the greatest demonstration of love, and that cost always determines value. And so if your value is determined because God himself was willing to die for you, that is significant. But I think there's another reason, and this is perhaps the second twist. There's two enemies. It's not just the red dragon that Christ came to slay. It's not just an enemy on the outside that sought to destroy us, that sought to enslave us, that sought to lead us into bondage. Because there's an enemy on the inside. God, in love for me, waged war against the enemy, Satan, but he also had to save me from myself. He also had to save me from my sin. Another Christmas picture here. Imagine Father setting a couple presents in front of you. One of them is wrapped, and he says, Son, daughter, I know what's on your list. I know what your heart desires, and what is in here is going to satisfy you to the fullest. Trust me, I can't wait for you to open this. But all the while, there's a competing gift sitting just across the way, and this one's open. And we keep looking at that. And we're prone to want to open that one or just claim that one. And he's saying, don't worry about that. This is what's going to satisfy you. Trust me. I know you. And perhaps that's the career. Perhaps that's iPhone 10. Perhaps that's the girl, the guy. Who knows what it is? But it's a competing gift. And God's saying, I want you to trust me. And we keep looking over there. We keep looking over there. And by taking that gift, taking that other thing, that other option for satisfaction, I declare that I think you're tricking me. I think, Father, you're deceiving me. Father, I think you're a liar. I think I know best. I think what I know is going to satisfy me is more than what you know. This, my friends, are, is sin. I think Jesus had to die so that he could deal with that inside enemy. Part of me thinks, why not just overlook this? Why not just overlook my wrong? Why not just overlook my sin? Why not just overlook my choice and my declaration that you're a liar? God makes the rules, right? He can do anything he wants. I think the answer to that is because God is just and God is fair and God is holy. Made in his image, I believe you'll find this deep desire for justice in your life as well. When you think of the horrific things that happen on earth, the horrific things that we humans do to each other, I think you'll find an a anger that is good. I think you'll find an anger that comes from love. Love from people. Just last week I heard of a 50-year-old man who was posing on the internet as a teenager to solicit and trick and deceive a 14-year-old girl so that they could meet up and he could violate her and do what he wanted to her. This stuff's real. Or how about the drug lord who, with any kind of threat against his power and against his financial status, will destroy, will kill spouse, children, aunts, uncle, of the threat 
and totally annihilate bodies and put them in garbage bags and send them. Or have houses that are chock full of dead bodies and prisoners. This stuff's real. How about the little girl that somewhere tonight is going to have father sneak in to her room while spouse and siblings are asleep and do horrific things to her? And this isn't the first time. Do we want God to overlook those things? How about the things in your life that people have done to you? Do we desire God to overlook those things? No way. Everyone in this room wants justice for those horrific acts because they're wrong and we desire right. So because God is just, because God is fair, he can't simply overlook those acts. It may seem, maybe in your life or in this world or at this time, it may seem that God is overlooking them, but I promise you he is not. That God is in heaven storing up his wrath to be poured out on all evil one day. That God will right all wrongs. If this part of the sermon is a little bit distant for you, I'll tell you what happened to me today. Uh, I blew it pretty big a couple times. So we did some Christmas presents. Um, Gave a command to my son Griffin, and he threw his toy, and it hit me right in the eye, and I let out a serious choice word. <laughs> the choice word. And then I went on to put him in his place and ream him. And he stood his ground, and he apologized profusely, and he said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it was an accident, I'm so sorry, you did a great job. And he sat there, and he just took the barrage, said it was okay. And then maybe 45 minutes to an hour later, same toy hits me right in the shin bone. And thankfully, I didn't let out a choice word, but I just let him have it. Over and over and over. And he apologized again, and he said, I'm sorry. And this time it was a little bit much to keep getting it from dad, to keep getting it from dad. And so I got done giving it to him, and he just retreated to the basement to hide under a blanket and to try to gather himself. The same evil that is in the Holocaust or these other horrific acts is in me. That same little seed can turn into those things. What I did today by not controlling my anger, what I did today by not expressing righteousness and true forgiveness, declares me guilty and I earn the wrath of God. I deserve hell. Thankfully, my son was gracious. Griffin, I'm proud of you. Thankfully, he was gracious and forgiving. Thankfully, God is gracious and forgiving. And I trust that not only has he paid the penalty for that today, but he's big enough and he's strong enough to overcome anything that the enemy would like to do because of my sin in my son's life. So because of that bit of evil that we were all born into. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the wages of sin is death. That there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Because of those things, you and I all deserve wrath. God had to die to not only take care, specifically, not the outside enemy, that's coming, but to take care of this inside enemy. 
We don't want him to overlook evil. And so he could not overlook ours. It had to be reckoned. It had to be dealt with. It had to be paid for. Someone had to die. So I think the reason that Christ came, that God became a man to do what he couldn't do as God, and that's die in my place, in your place. Third twist. There's a lot of stories in our history of sacrifice. There's a lot of stories. Think of uh, Homer's Iliad or Greek mythology. There's even stories of innocent people dying on behalf of others. But unlike any other story ever told, most of the time those sacrifices are to do what? They're to appease a God. They're to keep him to stay his hand. And the twist in this story, the twist in the Christmas story, the twist that would never, ever, ever enter the mind of man to write or to sing about is that the God who was sinned against, the God who was declared a liar by his creatures, the God who sought to save us was going to be the sacrifice. Not only the rescuer, but the sacrifice. Fourth twist. God became a man to die in our place, but he didn't stay dead. This is the other only God part of this, any story I've ever heard. Because again, many people have died for things. But the fourth twist is that Jesus came back to life. He came back to life to prove and to declare that he is God. He came back to life to conquer sin and death forever. He came back to life to bring you with him. As you were or are in the binds of the enemy, declaring God untrue, totally in prison to yourself and the red dragon, on Easter, and I don't think you can talk about Christmas without Easter or Easter without Christmas, when Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave, and pronounced and declared and manifest of all, to all mankind that I have done everything needed to rescue you. Because the wages of sin is death and I did that and I took that penalty, Nick, that you earn today and every other day of your life. But I'm not going to stay on the cross, I'm not going to stay in the grave. I'm going to leave sin and death behind me on my chariot that they will never again touch you in a spiritual and an eternal sense. I pictured Christ coming down from heaven, busting over, busting open your prison cell, busting open my prison cell saying, take my hand, follow me, let's get you out of this hell. Let's go. What's your response going to be? Perhaps it's, you don't think you're in prison. I'm not in prison. I'm fine. 
Maybe you can't believe that anyone would do that for you. Maybe you're not sure what's out there. You know what's in here. You're not sure what's out there. Maybe there's a few things in there that you like that you're not willing to give up. You still think that's the way, that's the gift that's going to satisfy. Maybe you don't like Christians because of how they live and what they do. This isn't about them. Probably most of those people you don't like, I don't like either. You don't have to be like them. I think this is a gift under your tree with your name on it. And I think God so desires to free you of your bondage. Will you take it? Will you say yes to that? This is what Christmas is all about. It's a rescue story to save you, to save me from the dragon and from myself. Maybe tonight can be the night that for one, if you have been redeemed and you have been rescued, turn your heart back to God. Thank him for what he has done. And continue every moment of every day to declare his greatness and his goodness. If that hasn't happened, maybe tonight is your night. Maybe tonight you, by the power of God, you slay a dragon. That you go hunting. And that as far as eternity goes, you are free for the first time and you are free for all time. Amen? Merry Christmas.